You're listening to Live Whole, a six-part series from Resonate Life Church designed to help you take a step towards freedom and wholeness in every area of your life. In this fourth session, Carolyn Dunnigan opens up the anatomy of forgiveness. What is it? Why do we give it too quickly or too slowly? And what happens when we can't receive forgiveness from God or operate in it for others? Thanks for listening. Let's get started in week four. Okay, so the reason I like to talk so much about forgiveness is that I think we have a simplistic idea of what it is. We have kind of a one-dimensional, simple, like if I forgive something, it's ended, it's over. The goal, when there's conflict, loss, trauma, broken trust, the goal is this one simple act of forgiveness and we skip the repair part, right? So if someone, if you loan someone your car and they drive it into a tree, and it's completely ruined, totaled, shattered, if you forgive them, what condition is the car still in? Okay, it's still broken. And there are different reasons we, we have a simplistic idea of what forgiveness is. And what I see is people will rush to forgiveness for several reasons. Okay, the first is because it's what we're taught when we're little Christian kids. And that's what we're taught as Christian grown-ups. And that's what the Word teaches. Forgiveness is extremely important. Forgiveness is simply the decision to not, you know, hold and harbor anger, hurt, bitterness, offense. Forgiveness is where I lay down my right to punish you. I lay down my right to withhold love from you. I lay down my right for revenge, judgment. Sometimes people deserve forgiveness. Sometimes they don't. But the Lord still expects it. It's a lot harder to forgive someone when they don't deserve it, when they're not repentant, they're not sorry. But we still have to forgive. We see forgiveness in this one-dimensional manner where there's no other kind of restitution, repair, recompense. There has to be restoration with it. There has to be a meeting of the minds or an understanding of what has happened. We want to forgive people and then think that something is finished. But forgiveness on one end and repentance on the other is what reforms a relationship. So if you have forgiveness on one end and no repentance on the other, it creates wholeness on your end and health, but doesn't necessarily restore relationship. One, we forgive, we rush to forgive because we're trained to, and we should. Okay, but the problem if you think that's, okay, this is finished now, is that there's no restoration, no repair, and there's no deep learning. You don't learn from what happened. And you have to learn from your consequences. You have to extract the lesson. There always has to be like a post-mortem. Why did this happen? What happened here? How can I make sure this doesn't happen again? And that only comes from understanding. And you have to talk through something to understand it. You have to talk through it more than once sometimes. So we want to forgive without the talking through. We want to forgive with a single conversation. 
You know, we want it to be simplistic because we don't want to be mad at each other. I don't want to be mad at you. I like you. I don't want to be mad at you. I love you. I don't want to see you as harmful because then I might have to separate myself from you. I may have to back away from this relationship. And we really don't want to see people that we're related to. Sometimes we don't want to see them as having criticism or being harmful or being unfair or being, you know, saying one thing and doing another, not always being really honest. Being quick to forgive is a way to just not know stuff. So forgiveness can be, it can be just a lack of understanding that it's a process, not an event. It can also be a way to avoid conflict. It can be a way to avoid hurt feelings, disappointment, loss. It can be a way to not end up separated from a best friend, an oldest sister. You know, it can be a way to idealize, well, I want to see my family this way. And when they're not the way I want to see them, I'll just quickly apply forgiveness. And then I don't have to see what's happening the way it is. And I don't have to feel scared or unimportant. So avoidance is a big part of that quick, and I call it cheap grace. Because there's grace and there's cheap grace. And cheap grace is when there hasn't been a, a real thorough cleaning of a wound. You know, if you stick a Band-Aid on a wound that's still got a bunch of dirt and grass in it, you actually endanger that person. You have to clean something out and then stick the covering on it. There's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Right, so peacekeeping is just do whatever it takes to keep everything calm. Do whatever it takes. Be a step ahead of mom so she doesn't get her feelings hurt. Be a step ahead of this kid that has meltdowns. You know, be a step ahead of these friends that get mad. Be a step ahead. That's peacekeeping. And, and really, it's just enabling. It's avoidance and enabling. So peacekeeping demands dishonesty and enabling, and it puts a premium on a man-made peace. Okay, and listen, if you've ever studied the book of John, it's just a series of stories about Jesus. In half of them, Jesus infuriates somebody. In half of them, people always go to the example of overturning the temple tables. Jesus made people mad all the time. You know, they tried to throw him off the hill when he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. The disciples like, they don't want us to hate us. What? Yes, we're going back. We're going back. We're going back. He narrowly escapes with his life, and eight days later, we're going back. So peacekeeping is a premium on silence and what I can control. And so we become really controlling when we're peacekeepers. You know, we manage, we influence you know, we'll tell someone, oh, you probably, don't you want to go do that? Knowing here's this other person over here that'll be mad if they don't. Okay, it's kind of manipulative to be a peacekeeper. So peacemakers war when it's time to war. They say stuff nobody wants to hear because the premium isn't on silence, it's on truthfulness. So when you have a premium on silence, you don't have truthfulness. When your premium is on truthfulness, you have upheaval, mad people, pouting people, people that aren't going to talk to you, 
someone that may not come to the barbecue because you hurt their feelings when you said this and that about, hey, your son can't do this at my house. Okay, peacemakers make something out of what's real and clean and exposed. And Jesus was the ultimate peacemaker. So he spoke truth. And then whatever was left over, you know, is what he lived with. But everyone, you know, and so we think about congruency, self-esteem, identity. I always had like all these different friend groups. I had Christian friends, I had friends that drank, I had friends that smoked pot, I had friends that weren't Christians, and I got along with every group. And it shouldn't be that way. Because if there's one Carolyn and I have one identity, there are going to be people that don't like me. But it was so important to me that everybody liked me. I, was, I had the, all these different facets of me. You know, I had one group of friends that I wouldn't say Jesus in front of, I'd say God. And I had friends I would never talk about Jesus or God in front of, you know, and I, I was saying my defense as a very new believer, but there should be one person everywhere you go. And if you are congruent and your identity is well, your identity is healed, there will always be people that don't like you. And you have to let it go. And that hook of misunderstanding, that hook when you know someone doesn't like you, that hook when you know they don't like your kid, that hook when you know they don't like your husband, you know, that hook of wanting to fix it, wanting to understand it, you know, actually that's none of your business. If someone doesn't like your kid, you, your husband, they don't like what you say, you need to stay out of it. But human nature is we want to pursue that person and dismantle it and figure it out and make it different. I'm going to make you feel differently about me. I'm going to interpret my kid to you. I remember one time when my daughter was little, there's a whole big group of kids playing and a big group of moms. We were at a party. They decided to play school, all the little kids. And my daughter's like, I'll be the teacher. So she gets up in front of everybody. And she starts giving them detentions, telling her, you sit up. You're late. And one of the kids came and cried, she's mean, teacher. Ah. And the mom by me thought it would make me feel bad. I was used to it. I knew my child. And she turned around and she goes, she's going to be a leader. <laughs> it's like, no, she's a bully. She may or may not be a leader. But she wanted to fix it for me. Like she thought I felt bad that my child was out there cracking the whip over all these other kids. And, and so we want to fix things like that. But if we're walking in wholeness... We can really forgive people because we know, hey, I don't have to fix you. I'm not responsible for you. If you're sad or unhappy or you don't feel good about yourself, you know what? That's between you and the Lord. So sometimes we forgive too quickly because we're enablers. We can't tolerate someone being upset. We can't tolerate someone feeling bad about themselves. But see, that disrupts them taking that to the Holy Spirit. If I quickly forgive you so you won't feel bad, you don't have the process you need to grow. And I'm acting as Holy Spirit. Because I'm usurping the real comforter and coming in as an earthly comforter. And so when we enable people, we disrupt them getting what they need from the Lord in their own way. What about speaking truth to those that you're pretty certain aren't going to hear it? 
Do we go ahead and speak our truth? Because I know that there are lots of proverbs about holding your tongue, you know, and we want to be wise. And um... Well, proverb, I think holding your tongue is when you're not going to speak the truth. What's the last two words? With love. Holding your tongue is when you're mad. Holding your tongue is when you haven't really thought through what you need to say. And holding your tongue can be when something's really not your, it's not properly, yeah, it's not your right to speak into something. So we think, well, why say anything she won't listen? Why say anything it won't change the uh, office dynamics? Why say anything my husband will just shut that conversation down? You say it so you have integrity. Now what they do is their their deal. But see, we get very outcome driven, which is kind of control. Well, if I say this, she'll say that. When she says that, I'll say that. And then if I tell her this, she'll tell this other person. So if we get to where we look at outcomes before we speak, it's a little manipulative. And you're being controlled by other people before you've even talked to them. Part of this whole process is just you being at integrity with yourself. You know, you being in integrity with other people. Because it relates back to the boundaries from last week, too, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Like I used to, I had a therapist, I used to tell him, well, I just wanted to be nice. He goes, why didn't you say anything? You know, it's just important to me to be nice. And he said, you're not nice, you're dishonest. I was like, oh, I am a really nice person. I am not. And he goes, yeah, you are, and you're really dishonest with people. And I was shocked I had never thought of being nice as dishonesty or manipulation or control. And it's all that. And so, I mean, there's a maturity to knowing what to say. There's a maturity to when to say it. And I teach people a a way to show respect is to say to someone, hey, would you care if I brought up blah, blah, blah? Is this a good time for me to ask you about X, Y, Z? So respect is important. You don't want to just invade someone's space and start talking about what you're upset about because people have the right to say, not now, no. So enabling, avoidance, peacekeeping, and also just kind of errant, accidental religious teaching that something is finished if we forgive someone. So why do we forgive too slowly sometimes? Okay, the last thing I said, if you think something's over when you forgive someone and you're still hurting, there's a temptation there to withhold forgiveness. I'm not ready to forgive you. I'm still sad. See, there's the thought, as soon as I forgive you, I have to be fine. I have to be okay. You can forgive somebody. You can even tell them you forgive them and still be upset and still need to talk about it. See, with all this confusion... That forgiveness is the end of something. It's this singular event. It's like having your appendix out. It's done. <laughs> and it isn't. Okay, so I even told, it was funny, I even told somebody once, I forgive you and I'm still mad at you. <laughs> I was like, I just wanted to make sure they knew. What about, like, uh, love keeps no record of wrongs. Um, what if you've forgiven, but you still have that hurt and that are you in sin keeping a record, or is that... She said, what about the verse, love keeps no record of wrongs? What if you forgive someone and you're still upset? Okay, it's a process. Remember, it's a process to forgive. We just want to make sure we're in the process in a real way. You can't forgive without kind of talking about something. 
and we want to forgive without talking about it. You can't forgive. Some things you have to revisit a few times to make sure they're clean and finished, right? Some things are finesse and they're a little complicated. And scorekeeping, like in Scripture, scorekeeping would be when I forgive you, but I'm going to bring up what you did strategically here and there. Now, listen, I forgave you for, you know, lying about this money, but, okay, a year later, if I'm reminding you, if you remind someone of what they've done, that's scorekeeping. But if I go up to them and say, you know what, I was just thinking about what happened last month. I was got really upset. Can we talk about it again? Okay, respect, boundaries, love. So if you approach someone with respect... It's usually clean. If you give someone the right to say, no, I don't want to talk about that right now. But the other thing is, forgiving too slowly is a control. So, again, and I speak in stereotypes a lot. It's just a time saver. But a lot of women withhold forgiveness. Because how do men act when their wives are upset and not talking to them? Repent. We're nice. Repent. Nice. I made dinner. You sit down, you know, the sweet text. And so a woman says, well, as soon as I forgive him, he'll stop trying. Well, as soon as I forgive him, he'll do it again. Well, as soon as I forgive them, they act like nothing happened. So the temptation to withhold forgiveness is pretty intense because then you get what you need in order to heal. Now, obviously, someone shouldn't go, okay, good, she's forgiving me. I can come in late again, you know, <laughs> or I can lie about money again, or whatever it is. So, will you withhold your presence, which is really what withholding forgiveness is. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to look at your face. I'm going to give you one-word answers. I'm going to be droopy and sad. When I make sure by my behavior you know I'm still hurting, it's kind of manipulative. We don't want to have any nonverbal communication about hurts, anger. So if I'm quiet, pouty, droopy, one-word answers, slamming cabinets, not looking at your face, rolling my eyes, go to bed early, don't tell you, leave for work, don't tell you. Okay, those are all nonverbal ways to make sure somebody feels bad. So it's highly manipulative and extremely controlling. If In therapy world, we call it passive-aggressive. The way you should know I'm mad is words. So what do you tell your two-year-old, three-year-old that's stomping their foot? Use your words. Use your words. Use your words. It's still good counsel for us, no matter how old we are. Use your words. Withholding forgiveness is to, because you have this thought, well, this will prevent this from ever happening again. Okay, so it's a way to wrangle fear. It's a way to get good behavior out of someone, a kid, a boss, a man, a coworker. Because, you know, our condition when someone's mad, we get nervous and we want them to be unmad or unquiet, unsilent. But also, it's just a way to protect yourself. It's a self-protection to withhold forgiveness. And if there's a self-protection, who isn't protecting you? Okay, that's not the whole, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. So the one thing, if you could grab one kernel, forgiving someone 
doesn't mean you're ready to not talk about what happened or you're through being hurt or angry. It, it's a nice building block. It's just a building block. It's not the end of something. Quick question. Mm -hmm. Do you see some family relationships as unreconcilable if one of the other parties refuses to stop a certain kind of behavior? Well, I have seen families where, say, um, I've worked with families where grandparents will come in and pick on kids. Or grandparents will come in and usurp control and authority in a house. Or they have a behavior. I have one couple that the grandmother comes in and she smokes and drinks and cusses. And they say, well, we want to honor granny in front of the kids. It's like, no, no. That isn't, so she can come in and completely dishonor. I'm going to let you sin and dishonor me in order to show love. So when we ignore sin as a way to show love, it's just it's just confusion. You know, because really most people that accommodate sin or enable, they're really trying to demonstrate Christian love. It's just a confusion of what boundaries that if you have to enable mistreatment in order to stay in fellowship with someone, you're ignoring sin. You can't do it. And but you try over and over to set boundaries. It's a process. You don't disfellowship yourself with someone because of one bad Fourth of July party at the lake. That's more of abandoning someone or punishment. I'm not talking to them. They yelled at my kid. Okay, unless you've talked it through, talked it through, tried to reconcile, you really can't get space. So abandoning someone is not the same as getting space. Getting space from someone is after a series of efforts to not disfellowship. So, go ahead. Well, I, mean, I know we're called to remember seven times seventy-seven, but there's some point where we are told we can kind of kick the dust off of our heels, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when he said forgive, he also he wasn't saying entertain them no matter how they behave. Walk with them. So Proverbs is all about separate yourself from such a one. Separate yourself from such a one, and so we forgive, but that doesn't mean. We dismiss or ignore mistreatment because then we go from forgiveness to enabling. And remember, Ahab got the same punishment as Jezebel because he had the power to stop what was happening and he didn't. And he ignored what was happening and he got eaten by dogs. <laughs> you know, Ahab got the same punishment as Jezebel because he accommodated. So the Lord held him to the same standard, even though he hadn't done anything. So what, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? What if you're dealing with someone who is a revisionist, that that event never happened, or it didn't happen the way you're talking, and you come to them repeatedly, respectfully? So her question is, what if you're dealing with someone that won't tell the truth? <laughs> well, so usually... So it's kind of more on our end, how long do we ignore? We will go to someone and say how we feel, say how we feel, say how we feel, and they go, it wasn't that way. I didn't say that. What? You're so sensitive. Oh, you're so controlling. You're, just a tr you're crazy. So really, it's more of how we ignore when someone's answer is no. 
So if I go to someone over and over and over about the same thing, I've actually got the problem. I'm the one ignoring that in an indirect way they're saying no. Because I don't want your answer to be no, that makes me sad, it makes me feel unimportant, it makes me feel unloved. So I'm going to go to you know, my 80-year-old dad or my 50-year-old sister over and over and over and over because I don't want to be away from them. So sometimes we just ignore that someone's answer is no. Will you please not? No. Would you? No. Because if they were direct, it'd be once. And so we ignore when someone's being indirect, confusing. So I used to work in a drug rehab. Oh, so naive. Oh, so young. Oh, my gosh. But I used to come away from talking to clients so confused, like, well, you know, I would just know something. I'd be mad, and I'd go up to talk to them. You know, their husband, mom, wife, somebody had had a session with me, and, they, and I'd come away so confused. And I had this revelation one day. When I feel really confused around someone, they're lying. And it has served me my whole life. As soon as I feel confused, I just let go, like, okay, you're lying. And I'm not, I'm not going to make... You know, the process of making another adult tell the truth is pretty debilitating, draining, agonizing. Um, okay, so the next one, forgiveness for ourselves. Let me ask a little question for you. Uh -huh. Is there ever a time where you've tried to reconcile, you've tried to, you know, you've forgiven, but that relationship just can't continue? Yeah, it um, all the time it can even be in a family. But again, it's a process of attempts to talk. You always try to have a, a new set of boundaries with someone. And in all fairness, you know, so part of people who are avoidant, which is largely, you know, a lot of women, is we hint or in a sideways way we'll say something. We never in a black and white way say, you can't do this in my house. Hey, I can't have you talk to me that way. Hey, this is what you said, boss, about money, and this is what happened. They're really different. So until we get black and white with someone, we really haven't given them the opportunity to change. You can't be vague. You can't hint. You can't tell this person, hoping they'll go tell that person, and hoping they'll go tell this person. But there are people who prize control above relationships. And then you have to let them do that. Okay, so forgiveness for ourself. This is, there's not really scripture for self-forgiveness, but what we do see is we try to atone for our own sins. Uh, I was watching a TV special one time about someone who had been a, like a murderer. <laughs> they had murdered someone when they were a teenager and, you know, never came out. It was way before DNA and things like that. But they'd spent their whole life volunteering and serving, volunteering and serving. And everyone came in the trial and talked about what a marvelous person they were, how they had served, they'd volunteered, they had, you know, saved puppies, built houses for the homeless. But that was really not an expression of who they were. That was an expression of how shameful and guilty they felt. They wanted to save somebody. It's a self-atonement. When we don't believe we deserve to be forgiven, we often don't know how to partner with forgiveness. We will 
intellectually recognize the concept of forgiveness, but we don't allow it to sink in because we don't think we deserve it. And the faster you actually can agree with that, I don't deserve it, but I need it, and I'll take it. The faster you can let it sink in that all forgiveness is mercy, but we feel comfortable being forgiven when we feel like we deserve it, like, well, I didn't mean to do that, or, oh, I didn't know that would bother you, or, oh, I, I didn't realize what I was doing. When we have compassion for ourselves, we can receive forgiveness but, you know, say you're 20 and you, you know, have, have an abortion or you have an affair or you steal something, you do something very big, and there's always a lot of shame and unhappiness or guilt around that memory. And then what happens is we, we want to divide and reject that person that did something so stupid. And so that self-rejection makes us feel better. But in self-rejection, you don't talk about what happened. You're not open about it. It's tender. It's shameful. It's a disgrace. And so there's not really a healing there. So self-rejection, self-atonement, I will reject that part of myself. So even if God forgives that part of you, you have to agree with that. You have to agree with that forgiveness. The faster we recognize that we don't forgive ourselves, others, we don't let God forgive us, it would block when we can't agree with Him. I had a friend that called me. She had cheated on her husband, and he had forgiven her. And then seven, eight years later, she called me from work one day. She said, I just think about this all the time. I just can't believe I did it. I just cannot believe I did that. And I said, well, does he bring it up a lot? She goes, no, he never brings it up. I said, well, have you repented? She goes, oh, just seven or eight times a day for eight years. <laughs> and I said, well, let's do this. I think that's the accuser in your ear. You know, the accuser comes and he brings reminders. And I said, next time you think about it, say, you know what? I did do that, but I'm forgiven. And I receive my forgiveness. I put it on, eat it whole, wear it whatever it takes, but I agree with it. And she called me a day later, the thought came, and she goes, I did it, and I had the best day. You're not going to believe what a good day I had. You know, she just needed to quit repenting. He says the first time we repent, he hears it. He hears it. He got it. You got forgiven the first time. So if you don't feel forgiven, it's you. You're the holdup. And listen, I'm not making light of these things, right? I have a whole list of stuff I don't deserve to be forgiven for. But I'm old enough, I've walked with the Lord long enough, that I'm like, you know what, give me more forgiveness. Give me more mercy I don't forgive, I don't deserve, I need it. Okay, so what forgiveness is not, and this is important. So this is also why sometimes we withhold forgiveness. We think if we forgive someone, we're saying what they did was okay, and we're not. We think if we're forgiving someone, we're saying it's all over. We're worried that if we're forgiving someone, we have to have all this contact with them, and you don't. We think if we forgive someone, we're saying it didn't happen and it didn't matter. 
You don't have to withhold forgiveness to have safety or space around you. And forgiving someone is not saying that what they did was okay. Forgiveness is not saying, I will throw open the doors and be involved with you unconditionally. And that's the main reason we withhold forgiveness is we think that's what it is. I have to be in a relationship with this person exactly the way they are and exactly the way our relationship's been, or I have to abandon them. I don't want to abandon them. Okay, so the last thing is, and this is kind of a teaching Ben does, so I'm <laughs> swiping it from him. So what happens if we don't receive forgiveness from the Lord? Or someone forgives you, but you can't take it. It hurts too much. You don't feel like you deserve it. Or you've asked the Lord to forgive you, and he has, but you keep talking to him about it. And so there's a part of us that just says, I just don't forgive myself. I don't receive what you have from me, Lord. I'm the judge of me. And I decide whether or not I get to be forgiven. And I decide whether or not I agree and receive and accept this. And so that self-atonement, and if you haven't been forgiven something you really don't deserve forgiveness for, you can't quite navigate mercy. I think you don't really understand the mercy of God and the fullness of the cross unless you get things you clearly don't deserve, which for me, namely, has been forgiveness. You know, I wasn't a Christian until I was almost 40, so I had all kinds of stuff I needed to be forgiven for. All kinds of lifestyle, people, places, things. I was very worldly. When I got saved, smoked like a train, cussed like a sailor, lived with my boyfriend, you know, and I would go on fast, and I'd just smoke like a train on fast, like, oh, this fasting is so hard, <laughs> you know, and I'd be hungry. I'd just go to bed at like seven, just like, I'm just going to end this day, this is so long ago, you could smoke in malls. So I'd walk around the mall smoking on a fast, just trying to kill time. But you know what? The Lord ate it whole. He loved it. He appeared to me. He spoke to me, appeared to me twice during a fast, smoking like a train, cussing. He just took me where I was. And see, that is outrageous mercy. He just looked past all that, and he's like, eh, we'll mess with that later. That's okay. You know, and he messed with all that later. I was a Christian a good year or two before I realized, you know, not everybody talks this way. I talk like a Dallas cop most of my life, so, but I believe I'm an overcomer. So, <laughs> so the double-minded man is unstable in what? All his ways. So if you have double-mindedness, every area of your life will have a little weird instability in it. Your relationships your health, your finances, your ministry, you know, where you work. Double-mindedness is the Lord says I'm forgiven, but I don't agree with that. He says I'm redeemed, but I don't believe it because I don't deserve it. You know, double-mindedness, ignoring sin, ignoring people that mistreat you and calling it love and grace. That's double-mindedness. Enabling. If we call something love that's not love, 
I'm going to ignore how you treat my kids. I'm going to ignore how you talk to me. I'm going to ignore what's happening at work because I'm given grace. See, that's a perversion of grace. Grace is not ignoring sin. Love is not ignoring sin. So perversion of grace, perversion of love, cheap grace is double-mindedness. Because if you look at it, if you read, pick 15 stories where Jesus threw his arms open and gave someone wide open, unconditional love and healing, they repented first. They came to him contrite. And we want to throw the doors open and give this wide open, blank check love to people who aren't repentant, aren't changing, aren't insightful, aren't safe. And we want to call it grace because we don't want to be away from them. We don't want to feel the loss. Because when someone chooses their way and they don't choose you, it sets off all this grief. So we insulate ourselves from feeling unimportant or unloved by this kind of weird configuration of what forgive is and isn't. So, okay, well, we are done. Are there any questions? Uh, in my own life and in ministry over the years, uh, I have found that this if there's a relationship that can't be reconciled, it's typically family. In your experience, have you experienced the same? Uh, it typically is extended family. Um, it can be someone you've gone into business with. It can be a best friend. It can be someone you used to minister with. There are, there are relationships the Lord will call you out of. And it's so hard to let Him do it that we just put it off. But yeah, it's usually family. I told someone I overstay every job and every relationship by exactly four years. <laughs> That's my system, you know, because it's so hard to believe that we just don't. If you enjoyed this session of Live Whole, Look for week five as Sarah Gibbons and Ben Watts dive into the abiding life of John 15. How can we live fruitful, overcoming lives through a day-to-day -day lifestyle of intimacy with Jesus?